Well, good morning, everybody. And it's another podcast um, with Agility by Nature, uh, a conversation I'm looking forward to today. Today, we're going to be talking about managing change. I've been trying to manage the change in my garden. The unseasonable and unexpected rain has made it grow considerably. And my lawnmower was called into action. And now I have glorious sunshine and my lawn is now dying to a brown patch. <laughs> but hey, that is the nature of the difference of weather. But what about change in work? We talk about change very often. And today I've got someone who's been doing a lot of change management in the retail space. Certainly in the UK, we know retail has been very, very battered by change and keeping up on the changes around them. So it'd be fascinating to see how they are responding on how the change management is responding in that industry. Today's guest is the wonderful Amanda Toussaint. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Hello, Ian. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure. I mean, um, always look forward to, to meeting up because we always meet up in one of your client areas. So, <laughs> yeah. Although not today, sadly. Yeah, not today, sadly, but yeah. So you, you have been uh, in the change management business for quite some time. And, and I did notice, actually, you, some of your earlier gigs was um, you, you were more in the sort of learning and development with Brit Insurance and DEFRA and boots but then at boots you sort of move from that learning and change partner to i think change coach and change manager then you went to ladbrooks river island selfridges ecom i think you're now at fortnum and mason you had a stint at thames water definitely a lot of retail in your profile do you like shopping i do love a bit of shopping you know so do i i I, I, uh, can't can't complain with that yeah i have i have definitely uh occupied that retail space quite a lot I think like anything you know if you have uh, worked in a particular retail in a particular sector should I say then you kind of get known for it and people want to you know want that skill set in their organization so then they recruit you to do the same sort of thing or to work with the kind of you know in their environment so yeah I've become yeah quite retail heavy but I love it um, and I have I have tried to deviate out to just to prove to myself that I can work outside of retail, which was my Acom and Thames Water gigs yeah. quite recently. But actually, now that I'm in Fortnum and Masons, I kind of go, oh, but I do love a bit of retail. I do love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, can't lot of, a lot of drama and a lot of uh, a lot of data actually moves around yeah. with, uh, retail. So I mean, you know, so in summary, what what do you as a change manager? What's what's your role? in any of the organisations, when they bring you in, they say, right, Amanda, we need some help, and this is what we need. Uh, Obviously, there's always a slight flavour to it, depending on the organisation. But I think in summary, I would say, my role typically is the bridge between um, technical teams, because I'm often in technical change, so I work in technology teams. So I'm the bridge between those kind of technical techie people over there and the wonderful world of the business that are going to receive this piece of technology. So I often feel like I'm that bridge between those two worlds, um, making sure uh, that obviously the business are prepared and ready for what's to come so that they can truly adopt whatever we're giving them so that they it lands well, they get the benefit from it. Um, and so really my job as I see it, it has kind of three big components, which is the sort of stakeholder management, yeah making sure that everyone's aware, I've built those relationships, they understand how and what and when, um, and keeping them informed. So there's a communications piece, which is to those stakeholders and to the wider organization to talk about the wonderful technology that we're probably gonna be implementing. 
Um, and then the other part is really about building capability and making sure people are competent to use the system in the way that they, in the way that we designed it or a way that we would want them to use it in order to get the real benefit from it. Because ultimately the job is to really make sure that people adopt the change and that the, this lovely kit that we spent millions of pounds on actually gets utilized. And hence why people like me have now become, I guess, more popular is that particularly technology departments have realized you can't just throw some kit at someone and go, here you go, here's your lovely new shiny toy and hope that they'll leave the old world behind and just embrace the new one. So yeah, so I think really a big, big part of my role is that stakeholder management, communications, and then building capability. Um, and that ultimately leads to a place where we get to, you know, we get the business bought in and using the tool in the way that we want. I, that's, that's quite interesting because, you know, IT projects are a little bit notorious for not being successful and delivering the benefits. Change programs overall and transformation programs are probably even more notorious. And, and the exception is that people don't want to change. I'm not sure if people don't want to change, but they probably just don't want to be changed at. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big believer that people are willing to embrace change way more than than organisations would sometimes allude to. People yeah. don't want bad change. People don't want, uh, you know, unplanned, unthought through, you know, dropped on them at the last minute kind of change. And then that's what often they've experienced. Or someone who's not thought about the considerations or the impact of this technology change on them and their ways of working, on their processes, on their people. So I think if you can lead and manage the change well, in terms of that really getting to know your stakeholders, understanding what do they do today, understanding what the world is that they're moving towards, and then working with the leaders in that area to really look at, okay, so this is where you are, and this is where we need you to be. Mm. What are we gonna do? What are the, the transition steps that we're gonna take so that your people are on board, that you are not overwhelmed with, you know, we're not asking you to do too much or too little. How do we really plan that transition so that you feel comfortable? And then people are willing, in my opinion, to come along on the journey with you because at the end of the day when we're implementing these new bits of technology it's not because you know the organization is spending like five million pounds on a new tool because it's not valuable they're doing it because there's some business driver as to why we need to do it and if you can convey that to those leaders and then tell them the role that we need them to play to help the organization and then work with them in a way that makes sense for their department i think most people are willing to get on board but no, otherwise, you know, there's a reason we're doing this. It's not just for fun. It's not because some, you know, some random team have just been helicoptered in to make your life a nightmare. We're actually, we're here to, we're all here with a common goal of doing good for the organization. So yeah, I think if you, if you can manage it well, and I think managing your stakeholders is a really fundamental part of this change role is like getting to know them, understanding their department, understand what they've been through, even like, you know, the changes that have been impacting them outside of what you're trying to achieve. So for example, when I was in Selfridges, for example, we had a, I was doing a bit of, I had a sort of side project as well as another one, um, which was about a payroll system. And that payroll team had been decimated, you know, in the past, they'd had, you know, people leave, people be made redundant, they restructured the whole thing, they were struggling to recruit people for the role in the particular area they were in. And then I come along saying, we're going to have a whole new shiny payroll system and you've got to do all this extra work or I need you to play this role in supporting the project. For them, that's all they heard was extra work. So 
it's about really understanding what's going on in that area as well as actually where you might want them to, to move to. Um, so I think if you manage stakeholders well, most people are willing to willing to come on board with the change. That's my theory, at least. Well, I, I don't think we would disagree with any of that. I mean, it's quite interesting when you use the word stakeholder, uh, my mind sort of flips between those who've commissioned the system of paying for it, um, those who are expecting a benefit, a business direction, something's to happen, less mm. possible, so whatever it might be. But then you've also talked about the users of the system we might not have had much say in it. <laughs> you think, yeah. actually, how do you sort of, the balancing of those three protagonists, because someone somewhere has wanted the change, but it's not often the users, or is it the user saying, actually, this is awful, this system, we need something better, or is it a mixture of all yeah. of that? No, it can be a mixture of all of that, but actually, as you say, um, often someone on high has made a decision to say, this is the direction that we're going to move in, um, and sometimes that's to the detriment you know, it can be, it could, arguably you could be making people redundant because this piece of technology is coming in. So yeah, I do understand that sometimes there's uh, times that those on high have made decisions that are gonna impact end users or that the, the impacted audience. Um, but even if there are people on high who've made decisions about what should be changing, I think it's about trying to get the, the, those end users involved in the design as much as possible. So I'm a big lover of agile ways of working because yeah. it's about collaboration. It's about bringing people together. It's about, you know, this, the, the ideas of demos and showing people, you know, little and often they get to see the system, they get to understand what's changing and they can touch and play and feel and give valuable feedback. So um, hence why I guess from a change perspective, things like agile just makes my heart sing because it does allow me to work with my uh, end users in such a way that I'm helping them see the journey and come along on the journey and really importantly play their part in in that design process in the you know the button would be better up there than down there actually I want the report to have this field in because when I'm keying it into the system it's easier for me to follow that you know the lines of data whatever it is that makes it feel better for the end users um, and then trying to make sure that the, the technical team haven't become so rigid in their design that they haven't accommodated or won't accommodate the changes that are coming through from, from those end users. Um, so I think if we can, you know, I am always like, you know, all, all power to agile ways of working and whenever I can, I will do that. And even if it's not an agile project, I probably will use those practices and those principles anyway um, of trying to get my end users involved as much as possible you know and I think that then helps me and it helps the organization to have people who are more receptive to the change yeah yeah, yeah. I did wonder if it was all driven from a big plan because buy thing insert thing thing live by date everybody's happy two weeks later warranty off everybody leaves or whether it was a slightly more sophisticated change that you plan nowadays are you seeing it's less plan You've got two dates, when it starts, when it finishes, or is, and is it now more of an analysis and actually embedding it properly? Yeah, I think more and more organisations realise that, you know, hence why I guess there's people like me that get recruited to support them, 
I think they're recognizing that actually change does need to be led and managed well, just like you have to manage a project. You wouldn't just go, oh, we're going to implement some new technology and you just don't get a project manager. Just hope that all these people will coordinate and, and organize themselves. And, and I'm not saying, I know Agile has obviously the Scrum Master, but there's a format for how they actually will work yeah, together. Yeah. Um, so I think organizations have recognized that actually change is a skill set that is needed in order to make things land well. Um, but you know, you still go to some organisations where they they don't always embrace it in the you know the full spirit that you would like them to. Um, but I guess what tends to happen there is that they get. You know, sometimes I get uh, sort of helicoptered in when when they've almost realised that all oh, the sort of shit's hitting the fan a little bit. I guess uh, you yeah. know when they realise they haven't had a change representative of any sort, they haven't thought of it from a kind of people perspective, and then these things have come and bit them on their behind, and then they say, "Oh, um, we need a change person," and suddenly you're coming in to disgruntled people, peed right. off stakeholders, people like, you know, very anti the project and think they're the devil worshipping folk that are trying to make your life hell. And then I have to kind of try and come in and, you know, ease the, ease those people back into a sort of warmer place of saying, no, no, let's, let's, how do we make it better? Um, and that does happen. Or even sometimes the project, you know, as much as I like to think we're all working holistically, sometimes some technical decision gets made that has ramifications for what you're doing in change like suddenly you're expecting a, a, a department to do double entry or something and you're like you do realize that's going to be really hard to sell like when they've got no resources they're man down you know so then it's about trying to do practical things like saying okay how do i help this department okay practically maybe we get an admin person in to do some of that data entry for you to take the burden off the bau team and make it not look like the project's adding, you know, and that's a project cost that we will actually absorb. So yeah, there are times when it doesn't all go, you know, swimmingly, but I suppose in a kind of weird and wonderful way, I, I also kind of like that. I like when it's complicated and a bit messy and I need to sort it out. If it's all just, you know, swimming along nicely, it almost feels like, ah, there's nothing to do here. Like <laughs> you're kind of like, it's nice to have things to get your teeth into. Absolutely. So. Um you know, the so who so when you're helicoptered in, who's who's bringing you in? Is it the IT guys or is it the HR department or because HR is usually like they they often get the the the, the hot hot potatoes and like, okay, so change thing involves people, lots of shop floor, give it to HR or is it some is it somebody else? Is it the CEO saying, "Good lord, what's happening to my business?" Yeah, I mean, often it's someone like a program manager, I yeah. guess. Who might say, oh, they'll 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 be looking at the obviously the program holistically, realize they might have a risk in terms of people's adoption, or they've dropped some uh code or some features have been land have supposed to have landed but haven't landed well or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I guess that sometimes that will happen where the program manager goes, eek we probably need some resource here to help manage this more effectively and everybody else is maxed out. So they go, okay, we actually need a change manager to help us here. But actually more, after, I have to say though, more recently, I'd say in the last sort of, yeah, probably in the last five years, I feel like proactively organizations are planning for people like me to be part of those programs. It's not like, you know, like even the work I'm doing at Fortnum's now, we're starting that work and I'm I'm in at the beginning at this discovery phase of like figuring out what we're trying to achieve and what we need to do and so I think 
particularly technology departments are very aware of the positive impact change management has on landing their technology. Because at the end of the day, I always feel like my job is to make them look good and to make the technology look good. We're actually yeah. trying to you know, make this look good for all parties. And if the program lands well, that's, that's a win-win for everyone. So yeah, I think in the last, I'd say like the last five years, I, it's not so, most people are proactive about planning for people like me to be part of the world that they're orchestrating. And, it's, and, and it sounds like the focus is they are aware that change management is important, but it's actually, it's the landing, landing it amongst the user community or the people who actually have to work with the system that's really driving that and making that successful. Yeah, and I think that's why I guess when you look at my uh, gigs over the last however many years, a lot of those have been retail specific yeah. because people then go, oh, well, you've, you've been able to land it in Selfridges or you've been able to land it in River Island and that's a retail world. And that's what I need you to do is to get my audience here in my organisation, because actually retail does have a unique kind of flavour to it in terms yeah. of you don't have end users often sitting in front of laptops and, you know, uh, you know, you can send nice emails to or have lovely little workshops all the time because you're they're often retail colleagues who are on shop floors. And yeah. so you've got to find different ways of engaging them, talking to them, uh, even being able to talk in a language that makes sense to them. So yeah. I guess that's why people will find, you know, I find myself, you know, repeatedly going back to a retail world because people go okay you get the environment I guess it's like anything else if you've worked in oil and gas for example you understand oil and gas and therefore you understand the dynamics of that industry and so that tends to be what happens here. And retail has been under a lot of pressure do you think that's encouraging them to be more driven to get change right and also you're talking about bricks and mortar still as well aren't you where they're under a lot of pressure from digital solutions. Yeah so I think you know, why I found retail exciting even back then was because retail was on a journey to this more digital world. You know, the idea that we use bricks and mortar, not just for shopping, but actually to pick up our parcels, yeah. maybe to look at product, but then we go away and buy it online. Yeah. So I think retailers have been kind of at the forefront of the technology change, you know, things like Amazon and um, even things like, you know, our Uber has decided how we think we need to pay, how we think we need to behave with, uh, you know, with technology. Um, and so those kind of ideas of like this, you know, we hardly have to touch anything in order to pay for something nowadays. We, you know, we expect our sort of Uber experience or we expect our Amazon experience. You know, we want next day delivery, two hour delivery, depending if you live in London. Yeah. Um, these kind of concepts have become embedded into customers' minds. And actually in the retail world, customers are sort of driving the agenda and driving the desire for change. And especially when you work in high-end retail like Selfridges and now Fortnum's, people have expected, you know, they still expect next day delivery, but you're like, you're, you're across the side of the world. You do realise that. So there's this kind of customer expectation that retail's now having to live up to. And so hence the, the technology change has been quite vast for them because online shopping is now norm for all of us. I mean, I, you know, especially in the pandemic, we've all been at home with no doubt, the door will probably knock at the minute in a minute with some Amazon parcel of mine arriving because, you know, me, me and my Amazon Prime are best friends. Um, and I think, that's an, I think that's how all of us are behaving. Even before the pandemic, we had changed our behavior and how we 
interact with with shops with stores we don't go in just to shop anymore often we're going into shops to collect parcels or to view product but we actually also do quite a lot of our shopping online so yeah retail's had to change quite dramatically and hence why it's been quite an exciting place to work because obviously there's been a huge technology change and it really is changing all of how they operate like how people how their colleagues how how customers how the business operates you know how it reports on things all sorts every facet of the organization is being changed because we now can't just rely on you know footfall in a store yeah yeah and, and do you think still, however, there's enough urgency to be crawling in the management and IT layers? Because, you know, last year, or, you know, the number of famous names that fell by the wayside, um, some picked up by ASOS, some not. Um, <laughs> do you think, you know, and, and this wasn't a mystery. This wasn't suddenly like, oh, my goodness gracious, there's Amazon. I think they, they've known it's coming. Yeah, I, th I think like always, there's always those who think they're big enough and strong enough to ride it out or they're uncertain as to what their, their new direction will look like. Yeah. Um, and it does take, you know, strategy and leadership and direction from the top to reinvent themselves for, you know, the 21st century, 2021 beyond world. And so, um, yeah, I think some some retailers and as you say, you see the fact in the fact that they don't exist anymore. I've yeah. been slow to do that, you know, that transformation. Um, that said, I guess, yes, there is, there has been a bit slow in some areas. Um, and I think, as I said, even in our, in the high end retail world, I guess customer demand has been so, so heavy. It's driven because, you know, people who are paying big books for things, they just expect a level of service that often these old bricks and mortar stores couldn't provide. So they were forced to think differently. I guess if you were more the, you know, high street retailer, it was a little bit more comfortable and you thought you could just carry on the way you were and eventually you'll do some more tech driven tech, you yeah. know, activity that would help your business. But I think the pandemic has become very real for all of us and not only, you know, have retailers had to change, but, you know, just even the way we work now, the fact that we're doing this through Zoom and Zoom is our new best friend. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of organisations um, obviously a lot of those retailers have had to really think what does this mean then you know like when you think about Primark who can't sell their products online and um, you know in stores are just closed with no outlet whatsoever um, I don't know what Primark are thinking but I guess there might be someone at the top thinking is technology and is an online service something that we want to embrace or not I'm sure those questions are being asked and you know it might be a strategic decision to say no because of their price point etc but I guess they're having to think about it in ways that they probably were never forced to before. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think everybody's uh, changed. Of course, there's all the consequences of not just people not going to work commuting, but not people going out shopping quite the same way. Mm -hmm. All the people around that. I was, I was in um, a coffee shop uh, quite well. Actually, coffee shop. It's Pret. I was in Pret. Uh, and, you know, obviously, I think Pret has always enjoyed quite good footfall, particularly in London, mm -hmm. uh, because of shopping and... Uh, but now they're perhaps not, and they're providing subscription service. So you can basically you know, subscribe to X number of coffees. And I, oh, okay, well, I see how that works to try and keep yeah. that revenue stream moving along. I don't, yeah. Absolutely. Because, yeah, because I, I think about, you know, even when I was at ACOM, I was supposed to be like at this old gate tower, you know, this big, lovely, you know, I don't even know, like 20 floors or something crazy, you know, building. 
Um, and, you know, a, a, the whole thing around there, the whole infrastructure around there is the coffee shops and the sandwich bars and, you know, all of that. And then you think, well, if nobody's going into the office, what does that now mean for, exactly. you know, for, for those coffee shops and for those sandwich bars? You know, it's like changing the game again. And so, as you say, it's like this whole idea you've got, you can download an app and there's loyalty points and all different ways of trying to hook us in to sort of, you know, to get some sort of revenue from people. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what happens to coffee shops now, like in this new world, when we, if we can't go to the office in the way that we want, I, I kind of want a coffee shop nearby so I can just nip down the road, grab a coffee and bring it back to my desk. Which is now my living room. <laughs> well, well, well it, actually, yeah, actually, most of my family seem to be using Uber to get food and coffee coming in. I mean, yeah. I don't quite understand. I like going out. I like going out. Just one thing that did occur to me when you were speaking about change, actually, was we were talking a lot about brand and product and, and positioning, but it still sounded like the change was a project. And so you're brought in, get it yeah. done, it's done, move on. I wondered what happens after you does the change management sensibilities walk away with you or do they still look after and still think about how it's adapted and the user requirements and how users are uh, involved and inducted yeah see this is one of my little bugbears so i guess um i would say that you know when we talk about these technology uh, departments and program managers and all sorts of people thinking about change in a more proactive way i think they still think about change for the duration of a program or a project rather than how change lives beyond that so I find particularly for myself being a kind of consultant I'm much more mindful now of designing what it looks like when I'm not here and that's kind of hard it's not so much designing the process as such but more how will who needs to be overseeing that change perspective what teams or people need to be involved in that? What happens if we have some new learning needs or uh, we need to communicate something around the projects? What happens when the, pro the, the technology needs to be updated? Because now most systems are these SAP systems, um, SAS systems that kind of obviously get updated repeatedly. You know, there's always a new, new release like our phone. So sometimes it's really intuitive. Sometimes it needs a little bit of a direction or push. So I find myself now spending more time trying to think about what does that handover, that, that sort of change management handover look like. So making sure that we've got really clear people who own the product, own the processes when, when I and the project team are no longer around. But it is a good point because I do think that's probably one of the areas that is my slight frustration because I think it's kind of like, you've left bam that's the end of that and we assume the organization um will just continue to evolve into this product and which is what will happen but actually we don't plan for it you know most of the time once you've launched something that's not really the end of the change management journey that's just the start of it so really from time of launch and beyond you're going to see the the true adoption taking place and actually that's the time when often um not always but often people go okay thanks for your services amanda you know au revoir it's landed and people are using it and you know everyone's logged in so tick 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 we're all good and i'm like no we're not um so yeah so trying to plan for that um 
more is kind of what I'm trying to do. And it, it's not hugely sophisticated. It's about trying to get the right people to have the right conversations at the right time and using some sort of metrics or data um, that will help them to see are we are we moving in the right direction? You know, is this you know green, amber, or red? I guess some kind of some kind of way of having a um, acid test to say actually we anticipated that the system would do these things and we would get these kind of benefits. Are we seeing those happen? And so the the minimum I will try and do is to make sure that someone's going to keep giving them those metrics. Someone's accountable for reporting upwards to make sure that they can continue to tell the story about the, the product or um, whatever technology we've implemented. And then, you know, there's the right kind of, often sometimes HR people, because you might need a bit of L&D or training people involved, making sure that those kind of people are involved as well as to what the kind of leave behind capability building will look like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, really, it's a really important point for me because I think, you know, that's usually when I, when I disappear and frustratedly, it's like, but well, this is when it's only just starting. <laughs> the other thing that occurred to me as well is you sound like there's a lot of products, um, you know, off the shelf IT technology being mm. here. And in my experience with off the shelf, the more you muck around with it and customize it, the less helpful it is, the less, shall we say, efficient yes. it becomes. Uh, but listening to you, you say, well, actually, it's got to work for the user community. I, so I want high engagement and high adoption, which often means, yeah, well, that suggests to me that there might be high levels of change, which the IT director might be thinking, oh, God, now I'm going to have this highly customised, difficult to support thing. And, the, and whoever's commission is saying, yeah, but where's my benefits? You know, so I'm wondering if there's a little bit of tension between that customization, so the high adoption and the efficiency of a cot. Yeah, no, that's a, also a really good point. Um, actually, I'm I'm quite passionate about not customising because I do. There's, there's this there's this balance, isn't there? There's this like I'm more about um, how do we maybe change the way that the organisation works? Because often, you know, tweaking someone's role is probably less complicated. You know, this might yeah. be a relatively junior role being paid twenty twenty five grand or something. Yeah, tweaking yeah. that person's role might be a much more sensible thing to do than trying to you know make it very customised so it fits that person's role today. Yeah. So yeah. I completely hear you. So I'm often you know kind of try to be the voice of the business sometimes or voice back to the business that says actually that's not really sensible. Like yeah. do you understand what that means long term? Because I think also my that bridging role between technology and the business it's kind of trying to be, you know, the voice of reason for the technology side of making sure that, you know, the, the right technical considerations are, you know, the business understands why we're doing things technically, but yeah. likewise trying to get back as well to the tech team from a business perspective, this is what it means. And then trying to find some happy medium that says actually, rather than heavily customize the system, why mm. don't we just give you a report, for example? Mm. Could we give you a report that gives you those kind of data or does that thing? So it doesn't mean that we end up in a world of heavily customized uh, solutions that mean every time there's a new release, we can't embrace it or it's very hard to implement and yeah. your system is always you know, 10 years out of date. And to be fair, a lot of the business do, you know, end users recognize that because they have probably felt the pain of it, of having a 
a, a system, a payroll system or whatever system that is really old and been heavily customized. And they understand now that, you know, everyone else is getting updates and they can't get updates. And if they had the updates, it would do this whizzy thing or yeah, it yeah, like yeah. this and they can't have it because of decisions that were made in the past. So to be fair, I think it's about making sure that they're aware of the ramifications of those decisions that they're making. And again, I think if you talk to people and they're reasonable folk, you know, they're usually heads of departments, they're, you know, they're reasonable people. If you can articulate why we might not want to do that. Often the problem is nobody takes the time to talk to these people. They just do to them. And then someone will have an adverse reaction because they'll be like, well, this is stupid. And why didn't you do it like this? And why do you do it like that? But if you could ask, answer the why, really most people go oh yeah that makes sense okay well i i, I want my, i want to make sure my system gets continuously updated so i'm, I'm not going to customize it in a way that means we'll always be you know four years out of date or something yeah yeah absolutely you mentioned earlier um some of the changes are to you know, help people but there's some changes that won't be so popular that there may be consequence redundancy between etc what's your approach to that difficult situation because we might expect management to try and hide that end result but still put forward the system as if it's going to be fabulous for everybody yeah and it sounds deceitful to me it they do and i i'm not very good at deceitful um so i just i feel like let's be transparent and um the reason why i think it's good to be transparent early is often the people who are being impacted you know even if it is a case of you know this there's four people today, and there's only gonna be two roles in the new world, and those roles look like this. You know, it gives people the ability to select or deselect themselves from the process. And sometimes that might mean that they, you know, they've been thinking about getting a new job, and now that they realize their job looks very different, they go, actually, I really will get a new job now. And actually, you might not have to make those redundancies because naturally they'll make a decision to say, I found something else and I'm, I'm gonna leave. Or, you know, the other thing I think is part of that change journey is sometimes also finding new homes for those people, because mm -hmm. often the organisation is usually big enough that there is, look at retail, retail has always got headcount, you know, like always got churn, I guess. Um, so it might be that this person can find a home in another place with the transferable skills they have. But if we wait to the very last minute and then go, ta-da, you're now redundant, um, we might end up making them redundant because we've not actually planned for where they're going to be. And so if we can plan for where, you know, that these are the people in these positions, that we know that there's going to be a reduction in headcount, and actually we've got a new function opening over here or recruiting over there, how do we then at least have those kind of big girl, big boy conversations with those people to say, these are roles that are emerging and this is what we know is going to happen mm. yeah and, and allowing them to make some adult decisions for themselves and again you know change is not always nice but like if you can make decisions for yourself as the as the person impacted knowing that you've been able to control your destiny to a certain degree it feels better to rather than someone just dropping it on you by surprise at the last minute when you haven't had time to process it or consider what you really want to do mm. um so I, I, I'm passionate about making sure people are aware of what the change really means. And that, yes, there's a timing issue to that. You can't like blurt it out straight away. You have to be considered and think about how you're going to land those messages and who's going to land it and how we tell people and what we say is available. So, you know, often my change approach is to figure out what are those other options, if any, 
or things that are coming on the horizon that might be suitable for those people who may be um, being made redundant, for example. But I think if you allow people to, if you give people enough time, um, give them the information, they will often make you know, a decision that works for them. And, and then you don't leave with a kind of sour, unfortunate circumstance and you can at least try and make it a, a more acceptable situation for everyone. Yeah, yeah. It's not perfect, but it, it's better, I always feel. No, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the impact of scale. I mean, dealing with three people being made redundant to 3,000 is obviously very yes. different and, and, and situations and the share prices and the impact of the news, etc. But the, the deliberate hiding and not treating people like adults, it, just, it feels to me wrong. Person, yeah, definitely. And I mean, and it's really, and it, it's much more challenging, as you say, when there's like, you know, you're a whole, you know, making everyone at risk of redundancy or there's a, you know, because, you know, I was at Acom when they were downsizing their UK and I business, their UK and Ireland business. And, you know, pretty much everyone was potentially at risk of redundancy. Yeah. And so all you can do then is from a change perspective of say, how do we make sure you know, working with my HR colleagues then to say, how do we make sure managers feel like they've got the right information so they can talk to their people, the people impacted have the right information at the right time, we have the right forums to have those discussions in. Again, the outcome will be people will be made redundant, but we've given, made the experience feel as, I don't know, open, transparent, an opportunity for questions as, as possible. But, you know, yeah. the outcome is still the, the same you know, 500 people lost their jobs. You know, we weren't able to, you know, Im yeah. stop that from being a reality. Yeah. Obviously things have changed for us, for you mm -hmm. and I, you know. So you're managing change, but the way you manage change is changing because you can't get to the shop floor. Well, there's been no shop floor for some places to go to for a while. Um, you're working for Fortnum's, but you're based in, uh, is it Leicester still? Leicester. Yeah, based in Leicester. Yeah, yeah. So I said, well, let's, let's pop into Fortnum for a coffee. And I said, well, I'm not there. Um, yeah, exactly. So and I, I've not been. I know it's so shameful. Like I've, been, I've only just joined Fortnum, so I've kind of given myself a. Uh, but I've never been to Fortnum Amazing. I've had, I have a hamper. I've had the hamper, but I haven't actually been in the store. Don't I know? It's the shame. <laughs> it's impacted me daily. To be fair. For, for all the people in the world who don't know Fulham and Masons uh, in London, it is a splendid, splendid, amazing <laughs> shop and a rather fantastic wine bar in the, cab in, the, in the basement as well, which I have been to a few times. It's a very, very stylish shop, a real icon, so uh, I'm yeah. sure you can check it out. And I'm sure you will get there. But the future of work, what, what, how do you see that now going forward? People are going back to the shop floor, we hope. Uh, people are going shopping we think yeah. uh, but change I think has been irre irrevocably changed itself yeah definitely I mean even just the way I work like you know particularly like in the pandemic you know I, I'm I'm a sort of you know whites of the eyes kind of change yeah. manager go and sit next to people let's have a coffee let's have a chat when when needed you feel like someone's not really with you you kind of feel it because you sense it um and yeah all of those kind of mechanisms that I that are part of my armory or my toolkit just to God that you've, you've got Zoom or a Teams meeting to kind of try and engage and yeah. hope that someone has their video on. Um, so yeah, I mean, just my ways of working have had to change because you have to learn to kind of facilitate workshops in a virtual world, which is very different from me and my fluffy pencil case that's usually, you know, with all my workshop bits and pieces in and, you know, it's become legendary as this pink fluffy case that she, once they see the case, they know it's going to be, you know, an action packed workshop. 
So yeah, so the world has changed for me personally in terms of how do I still engage people um, in a virtual world and how do, not only do I do that, but how do I facilitate and support leaders to do that well? How do you engage your team when you're managing remotely? Um, and some managers already find it hard to engage their teams. And now we're asking them to do it over Zoom or whatever, mm -hmm. which is really changing the way that they have to work. And obviously it impacts change hugely. Um, I, I don't, I guess I don't see the world reverting back to the old days where we all were in offices nine to five, Monday to Friday, or whatever our working week was. I, I foresee a world where we'll probably have different working patterns. I think there's been a lot of positives that people have taken from this way of working in terms of you know families being you know in situ all together I know we've had the childcare issues with the schools closed but once schools are back in place and a lot of um a lot of people have found the fact that they're not commuting for two hours you know you know every day and they're home sooner they can pick up their kids from school they can you know hand over to their other half and then they can work later in the evening so I feel like the nine to five will be broken not only will we work virtually or remotely more so this more hybrid model where we might go into the office for points of collaboration and then back into the world of um, our own sort of remote working but I think even the times of day might change because actually people are starting to really design their work day around their life in a way that we weren't tolerant of before and I guess we are more tolerant as well of um you know we kind of embrace that the dog barks you know in the middle of your podcast or the doorbell rings or or you see someone's kid you know tapping the mummy 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 like you know yeah, and yeah. you kind of just sort of ease into it in a way that you know you'd never dream of bringing your children into the office and like have some kid in a meeting you'd be like horrified like what's what's going on here but yeah. actually those things have become quite normal really when we're working from home so I think it brings a more human side to work um, which I think is actually quite refreshing um, my kids are much older now so I don't have the same I didn't have the same challenges of you know trying to work around children we were all working in our own designated spaces but I can see as a sort of working parent, that would have been a real blessing that I could have just nipped across the road and picked up my son after school or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think the world of work is changing, hopefully for the better. I think like, you know, like this digital transformation that's been happening in retail, I think there are those who are the forerunners who are just saying we all work remotely now or, or, or just really embracing the idea that remote working is here to stay. And there are still some organisations speaking to old colleagues in HR and peers who will say you know like their organization of you know almost like encouraging everyone can't wait to get everyone back into the office again and you just like yeah, yeah. I think there is going to have to be this hybrid I don't think there's a it's one size fits all yeah and of course the shop floor assuming it carries on being the shop floor will always need people there and I, I'm a believer that there'll always be shops. I know lots of people think that, you know, there's arguments that, you know, we'll, we'll get to a completely sort of virtual model of retail. But I think there's something that is intrinsically, I don't know, appealing for us as humans to go and touch fabric and engage with products and play with things in stores. And don't get me wrong, I think we all want to have that ability to do that but we also want to have that ability to buy and browse and price match or price review online like we are able to do now so I think that th that kind of hybrid model will also be relevant for 
the shop floor. I think we'll always want to be able to talk to a customer service advisor or a shop assistant and find out, you know, get information from them about the product that we're buying. Um, and it might inform what we do then when, when we go back to our home and decide to purchase that thing online. But yeah, I think I think the shop floor is definitely here to stay. It has to look potentially different. It has to be able to talk to all those various digital channels that uh, that are being created. But I think, yeah, I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to lose it. It'd be, it'd be devastating to not have a Fortnum and Masons, like it, that shop to disappear. And then we still want those experiences. Um, and I could imagine... I imagine that won't that won't stop anytime soon. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? The theatre of shopping, yeah. as opposed to the practicality of purchase, might be two very different things. Yeah, and you know, Fortnum's. I think even you know, it's that whole idea that you go in the shop and you play and you look and you browse, but you don't want to necessarily carry home you know twenty three bottles of wine. So you want to be able to have a mechanism to be to get that wine to your door next yeah. day or in a couple of days. So we all want this sort of convenience of what online shopping provides, but we still want to have that touch and feel and play with the products. Well, we shall see. There'll be much yeah. change to go through. Amanda, it's been great talking to you and seeing you again. And hopefully, you know, our next meeting will be in Fortnum's or there too. Um, Lovely for you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your thoughts about the movement from project to product thinking and getting hold of people and landing and adoption, but making it effective has been really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. And a glass of wine at Fortnum's is definitely on the way. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <Bye -bye. laughs> You're out. All right. Thanks, Ian.